Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Let Them Grow Together. It's based upon the lectionary readings for July 19th, 2020. One of the great gifts of Christianity is that it is steeped in paradox. Every facet of the religion, from its theology, to its ethics, to its holy book, to its founder's own identity, invites us to occupy holy in-between places, places of hard but life-giving ambiguity. Yes, I know, paradox doesn't always feel life-giving. Most of the time, we want simple black-and-white clarity in our lives, and we try to pummel Christianity into giving it to us. But God won't be pummeled. Despite our preferences, God gifts us with rich and rigorous contradiction. God is one, and God is three. Jesus is God, and Jesus is human. The Bible is God's word, and the Bible is authored by flawed humans. Creation is good, and creation is broken. To give is to receive, to die is to live, to pardon is to be pardoned, to be weak is to be strong, to serve is to reign. We're saved by grace, and faith without works is dead. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. The kingdom of God is coming, and the kingdom of God is here within us. My list is far from exhaustive, but hopefully it demonstrates how central paradox is to Christianity. Paradox is woven right into its fabric. At every point, Christianity calls us to hold together truths that seem bizarre, nonsensical, counterintuitive, and irreconcilable. And yet, these seeming contradictions are what give the religion heft, credibility, and verisimilitude. If I live in a world that's chock-full of contradiction, then I need a religion robust enough and complex enough to bear the weight of that messy world. I need a religion that empowers me, in Richard Rohr's beautiful words, to live in exquisite, terrible humility before reality. But what does it mean to see by the light of paradox? I think it means training our eyes to gaze at uncertainty without flinching. I think it means teaching our souls to love the both and, the in-between, the mystery. This is not easy, especially for those of us who grew up believing that Christianity is a 12-step plan or a surefire formula for prosperity or a set of holy propositions requiring our intellectual assent. I don't think it's a coincidence that many of the heresies that have rocked Orthodox Christianity over the past 2,000 years have grown from an unwillingness to sit with paradox. Jesus can't be fully God and fully human, so let's choose one. God can't be immanent and transcendent at the same time, so we'll emphasize one attribute over the other. It can't be the case that the God of all riches favors the poor, so let's preach prosperity theology. It can't be possible that a holy God is okay with human pleasure, so let's teach austerity. It takes courage to say, this is true, and this is true also. I don't know how, but God does, and God will show me new strength and beautiful things if I'll venture into the tension of this both and, and wait for more light, more wisdom, more truth. In our gospel reading this week, Jesus invites us to practice just this kind of courage. A householder plants seeds in his field. Jesus tells the crowd in yet another agricultural parable. But while everyone is asleep, an enemy sneaks onto the field, sows weeds among the wheat, and goes away. 
When the plants come up, the householder's servants are baffled. Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? They ask him. Where did these weeds come from? The householder doesn't spare them the truth. An enemy has done this. But when the servants offer to tear up the weeds, the householder stops them. No, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll instruct my reapers to collect, bundle, and burn the weeds, and then I'll gather the wheat into my barn. As I sit with this parable, I see Jesus asking his followers to hold two seemingly contradictory truths in uncomfortable tension. One, evil is real, noxious, and among us. And two, our response to evil must include both acknowledgement and restraint. Evil is real, noxious, and among us. For many progressive Christians, this is the harder of the two truths to swallow. After all, evil is such an old-fashioned, heavy-duty sort of word. It has an ugly history within the church, a history of exclusion and wounding. Isn't it time we dispense with such draconian language in favor of something softer, gentler, more enlightened? Do we really need to call anyone or anything evil? For what it's worth, Jesus does not share our squeamishness. He states without flinching that evil is real, insidious, intentional, and dangerous. Evil in the parable of the wheat and the weeds is not a mistake. It's not an accident or an unfortunate fluke. The weeds Jesus describes are intentionally sown into the field by a real enemy whose motivations are loveless and sinister. Moreover, the literal weeds, which many scholars believe is Darnell, false wheat, or lolium temulentum, are not harmless. They're poisonous. They mimic the look and color of nourishing grain, but they're fake, and their seeds can cause illness and even death if consumed in large quantities. In other words, there is nothing enlightened about denying the reality of evil in our world and in our midst. We are, like the field in the parable, both mixed and messy, each of us individually, our faith communities corporately, and our world in its entirety contain wheat and weed, good and evil, the fruitful and the poisonous. We are each, in Martin Luther's famous words, simul justus et peccator, at the same time both sinner and saint. To confess this is not to be draconian or puritanical, it is to be discerning and wise. It is to live in reality, and it is to believe Jesus. But there is more to be gleaned about evil from this parable than the fact that it is real and harmful. Jesus also says without apology that evil is doomed. At harvest time, I'll instruct my reapers to collect, bundle, and burn the weeds. And again, at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, this is not a truth that sits well with many of us in the 21st century. Perhaps we need to ask ourselves why. If this parable offers unequivocally good news for the world's most downtrodden, disenfranchised, tormented, wounded, and oppressed, then why are we uncomfortable with its sweeping promise? What does our discomfort say about us, about our location vis-a-vis -vis injustice, oppression, cruelty, and suffering? What version of divine love are we preaching if it doesn't include a finale of justice for the world's most broken and desperate people? What is compassion in the end, without justice? 
without an embodied realization of the good and the whole and the restored and the abundant. If there will never be an actual making right for the most victimized among us, then what is the gospel? And why are we bothering with it? What is the good news of Christianity? In his ultimately eschatological parable, Jesus promises his listeners that justice is both necessary for an abundant harvest and certain because God wills it. Yes, the weeds may win out in this lifetime. Jesus does not deny the grim reality of life here and now. Evil may claim victory for many seasons, lifetimes, and generations, but the passionate, protective, and deeply righteous love of God will not suffer evil to rule the world forever. Oppression will end. Injustice will die. The wheat will thrive and the weeds will not. All causes of evil and all evildoers, Jesus says, will be exposed and disempowered. All causes of evil. The causes we condemn in others and the causes we complacently excuse in ourselves. The causes that are personal and the causes that are systemic. The causes we know about and the causes we don't. All causes of evil. No exceptions. In short, all that chokes, starves, breaks, distorts, poisons, and harms God's beloved will burn away. Not because God hates the world, but because God loves it. Our response to evil must include both acknowledgement and restraint. I have to laugh at the earnestness of the householder's servants in this parable because it mirrors my own. Like the servants, I tend to get worked up about weeds. Weeds in my own life and... Even more so, if I'm honest, weeds in other people's lives. I tend to get eager and preachy and passionate, zealous for the purity of the field, possessive about the integrity of the householder, impatient for a quick, clean harvest. Also, like the servants, I tend to lead with confidence rather than humility when it comes to moral gardening. Jesus, trust me, I know how to separate the weeds from the wheat. Let me add it, please, and I'll have that field cleared for you in no time. Let's get the work over with now. Why wait? Let's settle the question of who is good and who is bad, who belongs and who does not. But Jesus says no. No and wait. Jesus insists on patience, humility, and restraint when it comes to patrolling the borders of his precious field. He asks us, even as we acknowledge the pernicious reality of evil, to accept his timing instead of ours when it comes to destroying it. Why? Because he knows, as Barbara Brown Taylor puts it so clearly, that the business of discernment is much harder than we think it is. Turn us loose with the machete and there is no telling what we will chop down and what we will spare. In other words, there is no way we can police the wheat field without damaging the wheat. There is no way we can rid ourselves of everything bad without distorting everything good. When we rush ahead of God and start yanking weeds left and right, we do terrible harm to ourselves and to the field. Our sincerity devolves into arrogance. Our love devolves into judgment. Our holiness devolves into hypocrisy. And the field suffers. The fact is, the seeds of God's life in us are still young and growing. Our roots are delicate and tender and they need time. They need lifetimes. This is not to say we should ignore evil, but it is to say that we should move gently and with great care, recognizing that our task is to grow the good, not to burn the bad. Our job is to bless the field, not curse it. Remember, the field is not ours, it is God's. Only God knows it intimately enough to tend it. Only God loves it, eno- loves it enough to bring it safely to harvest. So once again, we are called by Jesus to a complicated in-between. 
a paradox. Evil is real, noxious, and among us, and our response to evil must include both acknowledgement and restraint. If this ambiguity worries you, then remember that we are held and braced by a God who is too big for thin, one-dimensional truths, and this is a good thing. It's not that we hold paradox, it's that paradox holds us. We are held in a deep place, an ample place, a generous, sufficient, and roomy place. Though we might fear paradox, God does not. And it is in God's soil that we are firmly planted. We are safe, even in the contradictions. Messy and weedy for sure, but safe. For books this week, Dan reviews The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi Coates, born in 1975, is best known for his book Between the World and Me, which won the 2015 National Book Award for Nonfiction and was a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction. Two months after its release in July of 2015, Coates won a MacArthur Genius Grant. The book is a 152-page letter to his 15-year-old son, Samori, that describes how racist violence has been woven into American culture. Coates has now turned to fiction to explore the violent history of American slavery. When The Water Dancer was published in September 2019, it debuted as a number one fiction book for the New York Times and was selected by Oprah for her book club. Quote, one of the best books I've ever read in my entire life, right up there in the top five. The protagonist narrator is a young man named Hiram Walker, who was born into bondage on a declining tobacco plantation in Virginia during the pre-Civil War years. And since there will be many shades of gray in this novel, it's fitting that his mother is a black slave and his father is the white owner of the plantation. At the age of nine, Hiram was put to work like a man. He has a prodigious memory and is clearly gifted, but what really sets him apart is his mystical power called conduction that transports him across times and places. So The Water Dancer is a mixed genre novel that is in part historical fiction and part magical realism. Whether this mixed genre works as a narrative device is debatable. Nonetheless, the two genres converge around what Coates calls the awesome power of memory. Whatever else this novel is about, it's about remembering. But memory is painful and complex. To forget is death, but there is also an active type of forgetting that for some people is necessary for survival. Sometimes rage is the most honest emotion. Despite his photographic memory, Hiram cannot remember his mother Rose, who was sold by his father before he was old enough to remember her. But he hears the stories about her, and throughout the novel he tries to reconnect with his mother through conduction, which is activated by memories. When he is in jail and trying to reconstruct events, he realizes that telling the story really was my greatest power. So however complicated and painful the memories, we must tell the horrific stories of slavery, of how it separated families, of the sadistic brutalities, degradations, and endless humiliations, of how power blinds and turns masters into slaves of their own debaucheries, even while that power is a grotesque lie of the false guilt of failing to help loved ones, even when that's an impossible Sophie's choice, of the madness that resides in deep grief, of bad people who are good and good people who are bad, of uncertain loyalties even among friends and family. We must tell these slave stories, says Coates, but somehow not be ensnared by them. When Hiram meets Harriet Tubman on the Underground Railroad, she tells him to remember, friend, for memory is the chariot and memory is the way and memory is the bridge from the curse of slavery to the boon of freedom. For movies this week, 
Dan reviews Harriet. This biographical drama tells the story of the slave Amarinta Ross, who, after she gained her freedom, took the name Harriet Tubman and then went on to become a legendary abolitionist on the Underground Railroad. The director, Cassie Lemons, faced an artistic challenge with this movie, which likely explains his formulaic approach. Although Tubman remains an inspirational hero, she's also a biographer's nightmare. Tubman was born as one of nine siblings into a Maryland slave family. She never learned to read or write, and, the lo- and reliable documents about her, especially her early years, are sketchy to non-existent. Tubman was rented out of slave labor when she was about six years old. She later escaped to the North at age 27, then, defying all odds, made as many as 19 return trips back into slaveholding territories in order to rescue as many as 300 other slaves. She also served in the Civil War as a spy, nurse, and armed soldier. About a year after her death, in 1914, a bronze tablet was laid in her home in the central New York town of Auburn, where she lived for 40 years, which includes her own description of her life work. Quote, On my underground railroad, I never run off the track, and I remember, and I never lost a passenger. Stubborn and stoic, dignified and determined, it's hard to fathom the bravery and brilliance it must have taken to do what she did. Tubman saw visions, heard the voice of God, and dreamed dreams as a fearless woman of faith. She also suffered from acute narcolepsy. By the time she died, she was famous. For biographies about Harriet Tubman, see Beverly Lowry, Harriet Tubman, A Biography, Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom, by Catherine Clinton, and Kate Larson's Bound for the Promised Land, Harriet Tubman, Portrait of an American Hero. And lastly, for poetry this week, A Vision by Wendell Berry. If we will have the wisdom to survive, to stand like slow-growing trees on a ruined place, renewing, enriching it, if we will make our seasons welcome here, asking not too much of earth or heaven. Then, a long time after we are dead, the lives our lives prepare will live here, their houses strongly placed upon the valley sides, fields and gardens rich in the windows. The river will run clear, as we never know it, and over it, birdsong like a canopy. On the levels of the hills will be green meadows, stock bells and noon shade, on the steeps where greed and ignorance cut down the old forest, an old forest will stand, its rich leaf fall drifting on its roots. The veins of forgotten springs will be opened, families will be singing in the fields, in their voices they will hear a music risen out of the ground. They will take nothing from the ground, they will not return, whatever the grief at parting. Memory native to this valley, will spread over it like a grove, and memory will grow into legend, legend into song, song into sacrament. The abundance of this place, the songs of its people and its birds, will be health and wisdom and indwelling light. This is no paradisal dream. Its hardship is its possibility. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 19th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.